If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, as we resume a study in the Sermon on the Mount that we began uh, way back in September. If you remember, we considered the Beatitudes and the call to be salt and light in the world back then, and I want to pick it up in Matthew chapter 5 and continue that study. Uh, Much has changed since September of 2019. We find ourselves in the middle of an event that changes a generation. Uh, And we're we're beginning to hear many voices saying that things are not going to quickly go back to the way that that they were before this uh, pandemic. We're being told to expect a new normal, a new normal that we're, we're not fully going to understand until it arrives in the coming months and years. As every newscaster and commercial and email that you've received in recent days has told you, we are living in uncertain times. Uh, and I want to, uh, to leverage that feeling of, of uncertainty and the question of how things might change to help us get into how revolutionary Jesus and his teachings were to those who first heard him. These feelings that we have of not knowing what's next, of, of upheaval, were not far from what Jesus was introducing through his ministry. And in few places do we see that more than in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. The, the arrival of Jesus and the truth of his message changes everything. Though, as we'll see, change is, is maybe not the right word. In fact, we might more accurately say that Jesus fulfilled everything. You see, one of the questions that the sermon in general and our passage today in particular uh, seeks to, to, to answer um, is, is how do the teachings of the Old Covenant and how do the, teachings, the new teachings of Jesus relate? How, how do we reconcile the Old, reconcile the old and the, the New Testament? How do we rightly listen to Moses in light of the arrival of and the teachings of Jesus? Now, as I say those questions, they may sound like, like stale, impractical questions, things that, that theologians sit around and discuss and never come to any kind of an agreement on. Or maybe they're things that you think maybe first century Jews needed to deal with, but maybe we don't need to. But they are, in fact, questions that get at the heart of how we are to relate to God. They, they are relationship questions, and therefore they are salvation questions. Questions of how we can be made, made right with God and how we can walk in ways that please him. Questions of how do we honor him? How do we please him as his children? Questions of how we relate to one another as spouses and as families and as friends and as strangers. If God's laws are for our good, then we need to know how to obey them and whether or not Jesus' coming changes what we need to do. From the beginning of the sermon, it's, it's Moses and the Old Covenant that come flooding into our minds. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, They're seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He then goes into the, the rest of the Beatitudes. But we're told there in the introduction that Jesus went up on a mountain just as Moses ascended Sinai to receive the law and that he, he sat down, taking the traditional posture of a teacher in that day. But unlike Moses or other prophets, Jesus was not simply going to relay a message from the Lord. He was going to uh, deliver a message from himself, the Lord. 
he begins with those beatitudes which we looked at last year and he speaks about what true flourishing and happiness in god's kingdom will look like and as he delivers those words he speaks in the third person you know he says blessed are those happy flourishing are the ones who and then with the last beatitude bridging into the the second part of the introduction in verses 13 through 16 his perspective switches to second person it's not blessed are those it's blessed are you and that continues into the famous words of you are the salt of the earth you are the light of the world but now look at at matthew 5 17 through 20 and see if you can spot the change in perspective in these verses are verses for today matthew 5 17 do not think that i have come to abolish the law or the prophets i've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly i say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus is sitting on this mountain and he recalls Moses and the giving of the law. But the shock of verse 17 and the following is a bit lost on us as Jesus moves not into the third person or the second person, but into the first person with phrases like, I tell you, or truly I tell you. If you've read the gospel, you know, gospels, you know that Jesus often introduces his teachings with these words. It's on his lips 31 times in Matthew and 25 times in John, where he often says, truly, truly. The phrase seems not to be something that, that he borrowed from another teacher, but a phrase that was unique to himself and his authority. It was his version of the prophets, thus says the Lord, but in it he is the Lord himself. We may miss some of the, the shock of Jesus' words and authority, but the crowd understood exactly what was going on, which is why it says in Matthew 7, 28 through 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Stott says of the, of the scribes who were self-described teachers of the law that they devoted themselves to its interpretation and claimed no authority for themselves apart from the authorities they quoted. But it was not so clear with Jesus. So as Jesus sits on this mountain and, and speaks to the crowd, and as we, we read his words in, here in 2020, we should be struck by, by his authority. As we read this section in particular, we ask, if Jesus is claiming such exclusive authority, then what are we to make of the words of the Old Testament? How, how does the authoritative teaching of Jesus relate to the authoritative teaching of the, of the Old Covenant? Who should we listen to? If we're going to be in right relationship with God, if we're going to know true joy and flourishing through walking in God's ways, then we need to know what we are to obey and how we are to obey it. And here at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus seeks to answer these questions for us. In Matthew 5, 17 through 20, we find a, a more general statement about how Jesus and his followers are to relate to the law. And then the rest of that chapter spells out in very practical ways related to specific commands, how we are to relate to, to the Torah, to the law. But this introduction here today, it says to us that because Jesus has fulfilled the law, we as his followers must give it our full attention. Because Jesus has fulfilled the law, we have, as his followers must give it our full attention. 
We often want to relate to the, to the law like a child relates to an older sibling. Uh, that older brother or sister might try to boss them around a little bit, but the, the younger child knows that the only real authority is, is with their mom or their, their dad. And for the New Testament follower of Jesus, the temptation in reading, reading the, the law and hearing that Jesus has fulfilled the law is to say that, that we can now ignore the law. But he tells us, in fact, the exact opposite. He says that because he has fulfilled the law, all of his true followers will do what the law says and teach it accurately to others. That because Jesus has fulfilled the law, we as his followers must give it our full attention. That's not to say that we're going to keep the law in the same way as before, because the fact that Jesus has fulfilled the law does change our relation to it, relationship to it in, in some ways. And we can also say that, 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 that giving the law our full attention doesn't mean the same thing that it did for the Pharisees or for the scribes. According to verse 20, the, the righteousness of those in the kingdom must in fact exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And later on, according to Matthew 5.48, the, the bar is, is perfection. And the words here in chapter 5 are going to help us understand exactly what that means. Well, that was all introduction. Uh, so let's, let's get into the text a little bit more formally. Uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, introduce the meat of the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in, in chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through chapter 7, verse 12. But, but 5, 17 through 20 also introduces not just that whole section, but this specific section that goes to the end of, of chapter 5, in which Jesus explains and interprets the Torah, the law, in light of his coming. Stott breaks down these four verses that we're going to look at today into just two parts. Verses 17 through 18 focus on Christ and the law. And verses 19 through 20 focus on the Christian and the law. That's a solid, simple outline, and so we're going to stick with it. So to begin with in, in verses 17 and 18, let's think about Christ and the law. Christ and the law. The first statement of verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, implies that there were some who thought that that's exactly what Jesus had come to do, that he had come to abolish the law and the prophets. His words, his miracles, his confrontations with the leaders of the day made it appear that he was this revolutionary that was tearing down all of the old ways. But he tells everyone not to think that. Before going further, though, we should, we should note, we should clarify what Jesus means by the law and the prophets. The Law and the Prophets is, is short, a shorthand way of referring to the entire Old Testament revelation. The, the law does not simply refer to the Ten Commandments or to the, the 603 other laws um, that are found in the first five books of the Bible, but rather it's a reference to the entire origin story of the Jewish people, from the creation of the world to the calling of Abraham to the Exodus and so on and, and so forth. The prophets then are sometimes called the, the prophets and the writings, but this refers to the rest of the Old Testament that sought to apply the law to specific areas of life. So Jesus, when he says the law and the prophets, is referring to the entire Old Testament canon. So what was, so was Jesus doing away with all of that, is what we're asking, with the law and the prophets? Did his coming mark a complete sort of factory reset? Out with the old, in with the new. That's a, at least what some people thought. And people today still think that Jesus has come to abolish the law and the prophets. The Old Testament, in some circles, is largely ignored or explained away. In church history, some have gone as far as to cut it out of their Bibles. Is that what Jesus would have us to do? 
Now, I imagine that most of us would say, no, that's, that's not what he wants us to do. But we should be honest that in a practical sense, we sometimes live as if Jesus has abolished the law and the prophets. We ignore their teachings completely, or we assume that we should at least give a little bit more, la- more weight to the, to the red letters of the gospel or to the arguments of Paul's letter, letters. But, but Jesus says very clearly that it's, it's not his in, that's not his intention for his followers. He says that he has not come to abolish or to, to do away with the law. And yet things have changed because he says that he has come to fulfill the law. Dr. Jonathan Pennington, who has a very helpful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says that the fulfillment here has to do with figurative or typological fulfillment with a hint of consummation or completion. That's a little complicated. Figurative or typological fulfillment with a hint of consummation or completion. Remember though, that, that fulfillment is set in contrast to abolish. Jesus does not abolish the law. He, he fulfills it. He accomplishes it. He does not contrast his teaching with the Old Testament, but he reveals how his words complete the law and reveal its deeper realities. He both states and lives out the reality of the law in the most complete and fullest sense. Now, the best place to to understand fulfillment is to consider how Matthew says Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets in Matthew chapter 1 through 4. He uses that word there. In Matthew 1, 22, Jesus' birth is said to fulfill a messianic prophecy from Isaiah 7, 14 about how the Messiah would be born and the name that he would be giving. In, in Matthew 2.23, the fact that Jesus was a Nazarene is said to fulfill the prophets. In chapter 3, verse 3, the presence of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Jesus fulfills Isaiah 40, verse 3. And in chapter 4, verse 14, the start of Jesus' public ministry fulfills the prediction of this coming light that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah chapter 9. If we reflect on, on these, these passages in Matthew 1 through 4, we see that these are not just the fulfillment of predictions that, that prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Rather, they show that Jesus is the full picture of the Old Testament shadows. He, he figures and he completes all that came before him. He is the new Israel who conquers Satan and temptation in the wilderness. And he is the greater Moses who brings to completion the law and the prophets. In the popular novel, Ready Player One, the main character is is part of a a worldwide computer game with all these various quests. And in one of the quests, he finds himself, through the wonder of of virtuality, inserted into a movie. And not simply inserted as some sort of an observer, but as one of the main characters. And the game that he's playing as he's in this movie is that he has to perfectly act out all of the, the parts that he has been placed in. And for for every uh, misstated uh, piece of dialogue or movement that he misses, he, he loses points. And he obviously gains points for doing what he's supposed to do as the character in this movie. It's a silly illustration, but it might, at least it helped me to think about that this is in some sense the way that Jesus is fulfilling the law. He, he's not completing some sort of obstacle course of rules and regulations. Rather, he is being the person that fulfills the law. He is the, the character, he's the person that figures and completes all that the law was pointing to. As he lives, he fulfills the law by modeling to us what perfection and what, what keeping the, the law perfectly, what it would have looked like and what it does look like. Jesus kept the whole law. He took every bit of it seriously. 
He did away with none of it. As verse 18 says, he gave attention even to the smallest stroke of the pen, the dot of every I, the, the cross of every T. And even in his death and resurrection, he fulfills the law, just as he explains to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when he says to them in Luke 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into the glory? And then he talks about how he shows that he fulfilled all the law and the prophets. And this is the the core of what Matthew seems to be driving at, namely that when we look to Jesus, we see all that the law and the prophets were pointing to. We see it in human form. Jesus fulfills the law in a way no one had ever done and in a way that no one has or ever could. He fulfills it by figuring it, he, by being the perfect representative of what the law lived out perfectly should look like. So this is the relationship between Christ and the law. That, that he fulfills the law by completing it perfectly, by, by figuring it perfectly. And John Stott takes us nicely into our second point with these words. He says, having stated that his purpose in coming was to fulfill the law, Jesus went on to give the cause and the consequences of this. The cause is the permanence of the law until it is fulfilled, verse 18. And the consequence is the obedience to the law, which the citizens of God's kingdom must give. And so we arrive in verses 19 through 20 of our discussion at the Christian and the law. The Christian and the law. Stott helps us see that Jesus' fulfillment of the law does not do away with the law's importance. Rather, it, it heightens it. Because the Christian is the one who desires to be like Christ, to, to walk in his steps. Therefore, we desire to do what the law says. Because that's what Christ did. This is the way to greatness in the kingdom of God. It's to be like Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled the law. Now, as far as obedience to the law, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the poster children for, for, for such behavior. Their lives were devoted to keeping the law. Which is why it's so shocking that Jesus says in verse 20 that the righteousness of his followers has to be greater than the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness. How is that even possible? In a sermon, Tim Keller said that the righteousness of the Pharisees looked like it was a, a river a, a mile wide. How could they ever cross that river? But Jesus, in chapter 5, shows that the obedience of the Pharisees may have looked like it was a mile wide, but it was in fact just an inch deep. Their fulfillment looked impressive, but it was shallow. In fact, the rest of chapter 5 illustrates that. It shows just how shallow their obedience was. So we won't go into that right now, but we can simply say that the way the Pharisees kept the law was by, was by lightening it. It was by keeping the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. It was by outward obedience without inward devotion. The kind of obedience Jesus was calling his followers into was not some sort of stale law-keeping like that. He was calling his followers into a righteousness that came from the heart. A righteousness that had the glory of God and the good of others at its core. A righteousness that sought the happiness and the flourishing of the doer of the law and of all those around him or her. That's how Jesus kept the law. He kept the law as a way to glorify God and a way to love others. As a way to delight in God. Which is why the law is summarized as loving God completely and loving our, loving our neighbor as ourselves. If we're going to keep the law like that, though, like, like Jesus did from the heart, 
we realize something. We realize that we need a new heart. And so we start to see how, how the old and the new covenants fit together because the new covenant that Jesus calling us to is the one that was foretold in Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's the new covenant of Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus fulfills the law because he, as the spirit-filled son of God, is able to keep it in a way that no one else ever could. And he calls us as his children to obey the law because he knows that on the day of Pentecost, he is going to send his spirit to live within all of his true followers so that we might obey God's law from our hearts. Dr. Pennington, again, he says that righteousness in Matthew is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature. It's, it's whole person behavior that accords with God's nature will and coming kingdom. The righteous person, according to Matthew, is the one who follows Jesus in, in this way of being in the world. The righteous person is the whole person who not only does the will of God externally, but most importantly, from the heart. And again, John Stott, entry into God's kingdom is impossible without a righteousness greater that is deeper than that of the Pharisees. It's because such a righteousness is evidence of the new birth and no one enters the kingdom without being born again. How are we born again? Through faith and through the supernatural work of the Spirit to give us a new heart. Jesus in his death dies for the fact that we have sinned and failed to keep the law perfectly as we should. He fulfills the law by becoming the sacrifice for sin. But we see that he also fulfills the law on our behalf through his perfect life. This is the truth that Paul draws out in places like Romans 10:4, where he writes, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus does show us how we are to live in a way that pleases God. And the Sermon on the Mount is concerned about the righteous kind of living that we need to, to, to walk in as Jesus's kingdom people. But we're not called to simply strive to be like Jesus. We have to be found in Jesus. This is how we, we know Jesus isn't saying that, that law keeping, that, that a righteousness of our own through works is the way to enter the kingdom because he knows that we need a new heart to walk in that kind of righteousness. And so he gives us that new heart, not so that we can earn our way into heaven, but so that we can walk as the members of the kingdom that he has made us to be through faith in his finished work. Because Jesus has fulfilled the law, we as his followers don't ignore the law, but we must, give our, we must give it our full attention. And if we are found in Jesus, we will not only give it our full attention, but we will love the law just as Jesus did. Because in it, we see how to love our Heavenly Father and how to love our fellow human beings. We will be like the man in Psalm 1 whose delight was in the law of the Lord, because that's where the Lord's delight was. We will meditate on the law day and night and flourish in the world because that's what Jesus did. We will be like those in Matthew 5, 6 who hunger and thirst for righteousness and will hunger and thirst for righteousness even if it brings the persecution of Matthew 5, 10. 
We'll be like those who seek to do good works and glorify our Father in heaven, according to Matthew 5.16. We, we start to see some, some practical answers to this question of what will it look like to, to give our, our full attention to the law in light of Jesus' coming. What, what will it look like to give our full attention to the law in light of Jesus' coming? Three simple thoughts to close as we try to answer that. What will it look like to give our full attention to the law in light of Jesus' coming? It's going to look like digging into God's word. It's going to look like digging into God's word. We're going to seek to know this, what the scriptures say so that we can do them for, for our joy and for the good of others and for the glory of God. For now, that might mean really digging into Matthew 5 as we walk through it and trying to understand what Jesus is saying about the law. Digging deep into, into God's word, it shows that we, that we take his law seriously. Second, it might look like pressing hard into obedience. Pressing hard into obedience. If we're taking God's law seriously in the light of Jesus' coming, we're going to strive, we're going to work at walking in ways that please God. Misunderstanding what Jesus' coming means with regard to the law often means that we're lazy in keeping it. But Jesus calls us not to be lazy, but to press hard into obedience, as he did. So we dig deep into God's word. If we're gonna, if if we're ta if we are giving the law our full attention, we're pressing hard into obedience, and finally, we're resting fully on faith in Christ. We're resting fully on faith in Christ. We are we we are not trying to keep the law as a means of righteousness, but we're doing it by the strength that God provides. We're trusting in Him and His Spirit and His power to do it. We're resting fully on faith in Christ. With that in mind, two poems to close. The first, the very short, simple ones. The first is attributed to John Bunyan, but no one really knows who said it. It says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. And finally, a hymn by William Cooper that captures the change that Jesus brings to how we relate to God's law. He says this, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes the slave into a child and duty into choice. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes the slave into a child and it turns duty into choice. Brothers and sisters, let us not live as slaves to the law, but as children who trust in Jesus, the great law keeper, and as those who freely choose from hearts overflowing with love to walk in his ways. Let's pray. Father, we admit as we read the law, whether it's the Old Testament law or the new law we find here, or that this fulfillment of the law that we find in, in Matthew, Lord, we recognize that we cannot keep it on our own. And so we thank you for Jesus who has come to fulfill the law. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who has come to give us his righteousness. And we thank you for Jesus that has come to give us his spirit so that we can walk in the ways that you've called us to. Lord, I pray that as we consider Matthew 5, that we would not be those that, that run from the law, 
that we would not be those that ignore the law, that we would not be overwhelmed by the law, but that we would see, Lord, that by your spirit and by the new heart that you've put in us, that we can walk in your ways, that we would dig deep into your word, and that we would take seriously obedience, that we would press hard into obedience and know the power that comes through Christ to obey your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.